All right. Hey, I want to encourage you, grab a Bible. And um, this um, is, some of you are going to have to do a little bit of searching for Nehemiah. And uh, it's in the front third, I'd say, of the Bible. Uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, it's after the first, second Chronicles. Uh, if you've got a Pew Bible, page 389. And we are starting a new series uh, in, in our first book of walking through the Old Testament together. So for me, it's, it's, a, it's a totally different, going to be a totally different experience because um, I, I've only preached through uh, the epistles and I've only preached through uh, one of the gospels and we've done mini-series, we've done uh, you know, Advent and Lent and all those kind of things. But this is going to be our first time walking through an Old Testament book. And my hope is that through this all that you just don't go, oh, I know a little bit more about the Bible But my hope is that through the Old Testament, you can see all the groundwork being laid for Jesus Christ. Or that you can see in the the life of Nehemiah that Jesus is the greater Nehemiah. He's the greater one. He's the man par excellence. He's the one that just, Nehemiah did this. But let's look at what Jesus did. So much greater. And I'm just going to give you the heads up as we go through Old Testament books. There are certain sections where um, I'm going to encourage you to read them on your own because um, I am going to butcher names. And I don't want to read through a whole chapter of butchering names and f- to give you too much laugh, make me a laughing stock. So, um, but this morning, we're going to do chapter one together. And so follow along with me. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekilah. Now it happened in the month of Sheslev. In the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the capital, and Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. And its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before God, the God of of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps the covenant and steadfast love for those who love Him and keep His commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open and hear the prayer of your servant that I now, now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Confess, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the words that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are faithful, I will scatter you. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you are dispersed, be under the farthest skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen to make my name dwell 
there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. This is the word of the Lord. People cry about a lot of things, don't they? I mean, the most obvious, you'll go to a funeral. And there, there are just tears at a funeral. P- people just grieving. You'll go to, a f- to the opposite spectrum. You'll, you'll go to a wedding or you'll go to the birth of a child. And people are just in tears. I remember when Grace was first born, although it was just this amazing feat of medical science with the cesarean section, I was just in awe. But then the reality that life is brought into this world, I broke into tears. People cry about a lot of things, but rarely do you hear stories about people who cry about a broken down wall. So before we begin this series, I'm going to make the assumption of this, and I hope that it's absolutely true with everybody, that you want your greatest desire is to be used by God. That your, your heart's cry, when, when it all comes down, if you boil it down to absolutely this, that your desire is to be used by God for His grand purpose, His designs, His desires in this world. You want to be used by God. That is your, your greatest thing. You say, God, you wake up, I'm hoping this is true, you wake up, or at least periodically through the week, you say, God, what do you have in store for what, God, what do you want me, this, this, this 40-something-year-old guy, what do, you, what do you want me to do today? Because the Bible is clear that God has equipped us and given us at least all one spiritual gift for His service. In, in 1 Peter it says this, Each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as stewards of God's varied grace. Each of us have been given a gift. So it is a huge blessing to be able to be used by God. The God who created heaven and earth, He chooses to use us to accomplish His purposes. And I hope that it's our desire. That's that's my, my hope, is that our desire as a church, as individuals, is to say, God, what do you want from us? Use me. But there's so much more being used by God than just talking about it. Churches, individuals, are very good about talking about being used or what we should be doing. Man, we should have a task force, a committee, a group of people who do these things. We should plan this. We should do this. And we just flap our lips. And Maybe in conversations, oh yeah, I just hope that this happens. And we talk about things. We talk about it a lot. But there's so much more than it. You see, God wants to use each of us. He wants to use you. He wants, not for some later service, He doesn't prepare you, just, okay, just, just wait now, you know, go to college, go, maybe even go to seminary, maybe get in a Bible study, just get to know God, because someday God's going to use you. God wants to use you today. Today. 
He wants to use you right now for His purposes. And so as we look at the, the life of Nehemiah, we, we are going to see that there are some qualities of a person who wants to be used by God, whose life is, like Laura talked about, you know what, I, I am sold out to God's purposes, to His will, His design, no matter if it's in Illinois, Iowa, which is almost overseas, you know, or if it's actually overseas. God wants to, God wants to use us, but there are certain uh, things about leadership, certain things about being faithful that we've got to look at, and we're going to see that in Nehemiah. But I, I want us to look at, just give you a little bit of history here of what's gone on in, in Nehemiah. Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem about 444 B.C. If you know anything about biblical history, about what happened, Jerusalem, some hundred and some years previously, was destroyed. They, 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 they fell into sin, and God said, my judgment's going to be upon you. So in 586, a foreign army came in and destroyed Jerusalem. They they toppled down the, the temple totally, and that was like where God had lived. This was where he resided in, among his people, and this pagan nation came in and destroyed it. And on top of that, they destroyed all the walls, took down all the walls, just leveled it. Not one stone was to be on top of another. And they came in and just destroyed it. And on top of that, this nation took the people of God and spread them out. And Nehemiah is in Susa, the capital city, serving Artaxerxes, the king at that time, for his purposes. One expedition, some 70 years before, had, had gone under Ezra's uh, leadership. And Ezra was, was, was a priest who, whose job was to start rebuilding the temple. But the job was not complete. The city was completely defenseless. The walls had not been erected yet. So there was no longer, there wasn't any safety in there. The people were still under attack from outside sources. This wall provided some kind of barrier from the outside world so that the people could be the people of God, so that there was something that set them apart from the rest of the world, but this wall was broken down. So in November or December of 444 B.C., Nehemiah's brother came to the city along with some other men, and Nehemiah said, tell me, what is going on in Jerusalem? Give me a report. Share with me what, what is going on. And they, they, they told him, Nehemiah, the remnant is there, but things are bad. They're demoralized. There's great shame and trouble. The wall is broken down that's still marred by, by the fire that took place some 140 years ago. Things still just aren't good. The temple is there, but things aren't good. And Nehemiah had known these facts before. He was a good Jewish man. The walls had been destroyed. He knew that. But this was a first-hand graphic experience where he heard from his brother who came back and said, it's bad. 
It's not good. It's bad. And it devastated Nehemiah. It broke his heart. And we see here what happened. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept. He wept about a wall. He wept. And he mourned and fasted and prayed. God wanted to do something in Jerusalem. God wanted to do something in Jerusalem. And he was going to do something through Nehemiah. And so what we're going to see this morning is that God uses a person who has a burden for his people. So the person that God uses first and foremost is someone who has a burden for God's people. And then secondly, we see that God uses a person who is burdened for a vision for his purpose and has a commitment to his purposes. Someone who just loves God's people, loves these people who are lost and broken. His people, his covenant people, and the people who are far from him. God wants to use people who are lovers of people and also lovers of God's purposes. And somebody who is committed to God's purpose and plans. That's the kind of person that God wants to use. That should be us this morning. That God says, okay, Tennille, as you go back and do your OT, speech, you do your speech therapy, do you have a passion for my people? Or do you have a passion for a paycheck? So that you can keep Bob doing just teaching. I was a teacher too. You know, but do you have a passion for these kids, these people of mine? These are people entrusted to you. Do you have a passion for these things? And do you have a passion for my vision of what could be? And are you committed to the long haul of this? Because that's a person that I want to use. So you see that first it's, do you have a burden for God's people? God wants to use you. He wants to use me in some kind of capacity. And the first thing that he does is he burdens your heart with the situation. He gives you a burden for people. I love John and Missy Camiola. These people, it kind of blows my mind that they choose to take all these little kids travel to Joss, Nigeria, which is at the crossroads of the Christian North and the the Muslim South. And they're just right at the crossroads, and they put their family in the middle of that, where there is constantly violence. And they choose, because they have a burden for these people, that they move their family all the way across the sea to an African country to reach them for the glory of God. And the joy of all people. They have a burden. And if you've been following Facebook, have you seen what they've done? They have just recently brought in a 19-year-old prostitute to live in their, uh, into the Grace Homes. And they brought in two more children after they brought in one. 
The 19-year-old on yesterday decided to go home because she thought it was a prison because she wasn't allowed to go back to uh, the brothels where she served as a prostitute. But she experienced the grace of God because John and Missy have a passion, a burden for these people. So here's three things about, about Nehemiah's burden. His burden stemmed from a feeling, from feeling the people's great need. There was a great need in that time, that place. He heard it from his brothers, and he said, man, there is a need, there is a great burden over there. Something has got to happen there. And God used that burden as a basis for action. A lot of times the North American church waits until there's a tsunami for our burden to take place. But there are people who are perishing day in, day out. But we wait for a natural disaster to come in and we just go, oh my, look at all these people. They're now hurt. They've been hurting. And it doesn't have to be overseas. It is in our neighborhood. These people have a need. Are we burdened for their need? Do we see that they have a great need? So you start thinking about there and th- about this, and you start, if you're anything like me, you go, okay, where do I begin? Because if I, I start in our community, there's tons of needs in our community. There's tons of needs in the Chicagoland area. There, there's tons of needs. You keep drawing the circle out now. Where do you begin? And you become overwhelmed to the point where you just say, forget it, I can't do anything. There's just nothing. Because if I have to give a dollar to every little thing, okay, Samaritan's Purse, okay, Compassion International, Feed My Starving Children, what about this, what about this, what about this? Uh, there's, there's just nothing that I can do. So how do we respond to all these needs? Well, first, I think that we cannot let the immensity of the needs paralyze us. Paralyze us to the point of doing nothing. They're just all over the place. How do we do it? How do we, how do we respond to the, all these needs around the world? Well, let, let's look at the chief example of, that we have. And we see this in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, what did he do? We see this in Matthew 9. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. For they were like, they, they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into, his, into, his, into the fields for, this, for the sake of this harvest. Pray earnestly. We, as a church cannot meet absolutely every need in the Lincoln Way area. We as a church cannot meet the needs of every person in Roseland. We cannot, as a church, meet all the needs of, of the people in Ethiopia, in Jos, Nigeria. We, it's absolutely impossible. But what did Jesus do? He had compassion. And then he said, pray earnestly. Seriously, just pray earnestly. Lord, raise up Maybe amongst us. God, raise up amongst us laborers for the field. Raise up and send them out because a harvest is plentiful, but the workers, they're few and far between. Raise up laborers. 
but it requires a heart. And we need to say, you know what? God, give me the eyes of Jesus to see the needs of the people. Give me the heart of Jesus to feel the compassion I need to have for them. And raise up workers, Jesus, for the harvest. Raise them up. And second thing that we need to see about this burden is don't commit yourself to something just because the need is there. That's the hard thing, isn't it? You hear about a need, it's like, oh man, I, I better give here, I better give here, I better give here, I better give here, I better give here. Oh, if I don't do this, this is going to be unfaithful. That's not how it works. The needs are endless. You don't have to respond to all the world's needs. Because then we fall into guilt, don't we? Guilt-based religion. What do you mean you're not helping the people with clean water? What kind of church are you? What do you mean you're... What do you mean? You're not doing that? What kind of church are you? Well, you should be doing this. Well, what about this? What about this? What about that? What do you mean you're not doing... We cannot fall into that trap, but rather we're to wait in prayer and listen carefully as He burdens us, burdens us for a particular need Alan Redpath, he was a, he's a famous, famous evangelist in, in, uh, in England, said this. Recognition of need must be followed by earnest, persistent waiting upon God until the overwhelming sen- sense of world need becomes a specific burden in my soul for one particular piece of work which God would have me to do. You, you just pray, God. I'm praying for the world. I pray. I remember when uh, Andy Sabaka uh, preached before he went down to Atlanta. He, he talked about that book. The book name of the book is slipping through my mind. Katie, do you know what it is? Operation. Operation. Operation World. Operation World, where you can pray through all the needs in the world. Maybe that's a way where till finally God just says, "It's this one. It's these people." Now act. The second thing about Nehemiah's burden was focus on seeing the people's great sin. Nehemiah was realistic in assessing the problem. He quickly realized that at the heart of the problem was not a lack of organization. Though there was a huge need of organization, and we'll see that later. He wasn't focusing, he, he, focusing on the lack of resources, although there was a huge lack of resources. Huge lack of resources. The root of the problem was not lack of resources or organization. The root problem was sin. That's the root problem. You see that in in verses 6 and 7. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel which have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. That we have very corruptly is really a nice English way of saying we have, we're, we're totally messed up. We have just, we were just wicked, wicked people. So he recognizes that the problem, and the Bible is clear that the problem with all of our global and personal problems is sin. That is the biggest problem. Why are there wars and terrorist attacks? 
Why? Sin. Why are there fam- famines and disease? Sin. Why, why are there governments and businesses riddled with greed and corruption? Sin. Why is the mission and the task of the church not fulfilled? Corporately and individually? It's sin. Let's take it to a personal level. Why do couples argue and have communication problems? Because she doesn't understand. No, it's because of sin. Why do kids from Christian homes rebel against God and their parents? Sin. Why, why do non-Christian kids rebel against their, their parents? It's sin. Whatever the problem, you can trace its roots back to either the original sin of Adam and Eve or directly to the sins of the people in their day and age. It is sin. And it's not just their sin. It's also, did you see Nehemiah? Oh, even my, me and my father's house, we, we have sinned and we are very corrupt. We have not obeyed the commandments that you gave to Moses. We, we are just as guilty as they are. It is because of us and our unfaithfulness and our lack of following through of what you have given to us. We have not been acting like your covenant people. We have sinned. And so as we go out in mission together, as we identify what God is calling us to do, we have got to say, Lord, work on our pride. Forgive us of our sin. And we identify this. We identify that. We are not generous. We are not this. We are not that. We are not caring. We are uncompetent discompassionate we are we, this is who we are god when we recognize this oh god forgive our great sins we are very corrupt before your eyes we have not been following your precepts we are these people forgive us and god for the people in that land for that neighbor next door lord forgive them their hard hearts my hard heart the greatest problem is sin the root need for everybody is repentance. On the part of God's people who have forgotten His purposes and are living for our own purposes. And lost people need to repent so that they can be reconciled to God. The greatest need is to repent. Third thing about Nehemiah's burden is Nehemiah was lightened by seeing the, the people's great God. See how he, he addressed God? He said, Oh Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps His covenant and steadfast love. He just, he's just painting this huge picture He goes on in verse 10 and says, they're they're your servants, your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. This great God has great people. His burden is great. The great God's people. And so, what if you honestly, and this goes for all of us, what if you honestly don't have a burden for God's people or lost people? What if 
it's a question for us as a church. What if you don't have a burden for each other? What if your heart doesn't break for the chapels or the Windsors, the Grigolettis, friends from outside, or Pete, or the Solomons? What if your heart, if you don't have a burden for God's people, and you just live your little insulated lives in your own nice little bubble, raising your beautiful 2.5 children, or maybe your single life, or whatever it is. You just really live in this nice little safe world. It's all about me and all. What if you don't have a burden for God's people? And I mean a burden, not just like, oh, I'm curious about them. A burden. A heavy burden for them. Well, I'm going to say this, and it's, it's dangerous. It could mean, it could mean that you are not born again. Because you're not concerned about the things that God is concerned about. If you're not concerned for each other, the people who are in, who have been purchased by Christ, brought into His kingdom of light, if you're not concerned about them, you're not concerned about the things of God. What if you're not concerned about the people on the outside? Your lost neighbors, your lost co-workers, the lost barista, the lost grocery bagger. Maybe you are born again, but you don't feel burdened for the lost people of God. It probably means that you've been so caught up with the things that you are seeking which more than likely are not the kingdom of God. You've been so caught up in in things. You've been so caught up in activities. You've been so caught up in your world, your little, your kingdom, your little fiefdom, where you're king and queen. Maybe it's time to repent of that. And say, God, again, break me. And use me for your purposes. Use me. So, your purposes is the second piece of that. God uses a person who is burdened for his people, and he also uses the person who has a vision for his his purpose. Nehemiah, in verse 9, you see that Nehemiah knew that God said, to Moses that I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Nehemiah knew God's vision and plan and purpose was to bring the children back from all the far reaches. God promised that. You, you call upon my name again, you repent, and I'll bring them back. And Nehemiah knew that. He knew God's purpose, his vision for the best ideal future of God's people to be together in Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, or in the New Testament age, God's purpose involves the church. His church, big C and little c, involves the local church. And, And Jesus said in Matthew 16 that, I will build what? My church. God wants to use the local church. And He wants to save people from around the globe. He wants to save people locally. 
And God's chief purpose in doing all this, His, His ultimate vision and purpose and plans is that to further His own glory, to further His, to further joy through salvation that His, his people are able to experience in Him. They want, he wants people to enjoy Him first and foremost. God did not save you to give you a happy life. To live in suburbia. Where it's nice, safe, and comfortable. God saved you for His purposes. For His glory. To make His name huge. So that His name just radiates out through our whole south suburbs and into the world. God saved you for those purposes. Not to amass money. Not to get you a bigger house. Not to have really cute kids. Not to have a great job or fiancé or boyfriend or a girlfriend or whatever it is. To have a car, a Jeep. God saved you for His purposes of making His name huge. Preach it, girl. Rejoicing in God and glorifying God are the same thing. And therefore, it is the aim of missions, according to John Piper. Rejoicing in God, glorifying God, is the chief end. We just enjoy God. That's our purpose. And therefore, what do we do when we go to the nations and into our neighborhood is is to bring that vision. I want you to enjoy God Just relish in His goodness. That's what I want for you. Not just to have a better life now. I want you to just enjoy God. And to give Him more glory. And to increase. So finally, the person that God uses has a commitment. Has a commitment to His purposes. And I want you to, as, as we walk through this very short last piece, the word that kept coming into my head was Christology. It's what I understand about Christ. And I'd encourage some of you to go back to, to Philippians chapter 2 sometime this week and look at Christ's commitment to the church. But first and foremost, Christ's commitment to God and giving God glory. He did these things so that God would be glorified. He loved the church, gave himself up completely, so that why? So that God would get more glory. More praise goes back up to God. But when Nehemiah heard the sad conditions, he didn't say, well, that's just too bad. I hope that somebody does something about it. Rather, he was willing to commit himself to the task and stick to it, despite the innumerable issues that are going to come up. He stuck to it. Come hell, fire, brimstone, other pagan people that were coming at him, despite lack of resources, leaving the comforts of the great castle that he had in Susa, he was committed to it. He was willing, here, notice this, two things. He was willing to count the world as lost for the sake of God's purposes. 
Do you hear Christ in there? He counted all things as lost for the sake of God's purposes. He gave up everything. He gave up his, his throne sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He was sitting there right by God enjoying angels and praising Him and loving Him and adoring Him and just 24-7 just enjoying Him. He was just, oh, i got a choir. They love me. Ah, oh, I love this. But what did He do? He counted all that and said, listen, I will put on flesh, become man, and dwell among these lost people. I will do that. And Nehemiah does the same thing. At the very end, if you read too quickly, it feels like it's kind of out of place. That verse 11, now it was a cupbearer to the king. What? Is that like your resume? What, what are you just throwing it out there? You're dead. It's not helping anything right now. But I was a cupbearer to the king. This cupbearer was a high government official. It wasn't just the guy who was carrying the cup around wherever the king was going. If you look through historical documents, his responsibility was to choose and taste the wine before it was served to the king to make sure that it wasn't poisoned. He was the first guy to be knocked off. He would have been a handsome man. A well-trained individual in court etiquette because he was in the king's court all the time. He was a, he was a looker. A handsome man. GQ would have been happy with him. He was in the court of the king. He would have had to be a friendly companion, working with the king, willing to lend an ear and even give advice to the king. Early documents even said that the cupbearer would be the one, the keeper of the royal signet that signed off on all royal documents. This guy was it. He may have been, even been in charge of all the administration of the accounts and Serve second to the king. So Nehemiah was the guy. He lived in the palace of Susa. He lived there. And doing the research, this was the palace. Lifestyles of the rich and famous, this is it. And he was living in the lap of luxury. But now he hears the distress of God's people and that there's great shame and distress. And what did he do? I counted all his loss. So that what? I may achieve God's purposes. I give it all up. Was it a costly sacrifice? Yes and no. Yes, he had to give up all the comforts that he enjoyed and endure a lot of hardship. So yes, costly that way in our North American way of thinking. Man, that was costly. I don't know if I could do that. You know, I, I really like my air conditioning. I like my one flat. I like this. I like to have this. I like to have this kind of car. I like to have this kind of lifestyle, wear these kind of clothes. But no, it wasn't costly in that he could no longer be happy in doing what he was doing. He found great joy in doing what God wanted him to do. He counted up, like Paul, counted all rubbish that he might gain Christ. And number two thing that we notice is that he was willing to overcome all obstacles. All obstacles for the sake of God's purposes. We're going to 
find out that there's all kinds of people that are gonna, he's going to bump into and issues he's going to bump into. And he had a ragtag group of people. Ragtag group of exiles. But in 52 days, 52 days, they rebuilt the wall. 52 days. That's amazing. If you tried to do anything in service for, for God, you will face all kinds of obstacles. You will face all kinds of opposition. Some of it will come from the world. The most difficult will probably come from within the church, sadly. And you have to realize up front that you will encounter problems. You will encounter problems. So I want to challenge us all with this. I don't want us to throw our life away by chasing the American dream. I don't want us to throw our life away by chasing the American dream. Let me say it one more time. I don't want us to throw our life away by chasing the American dream. Because there are dreams that are of God that are so much more grand and beautiful and powerful than the stinking American dream. He has us planted here for a reason. To pursue His purposes and His plans for His people. But if we get caught up in the American dream, we have lost the race. God desires us to fulfill His purposes, His dreams, with a commitment that is unwavering. I don't want us to be a people where I hear about us years down when some of us have retired and hear about you just wasting your life walking along the shores of Sanibel Island picking up shells. Saying, oh, look at this pretty one. Wasting your life away. Chasing the American dream. But instead, I pray, I pray that God gives us a burden. A burden for His people. Wherever you and we are located. A burden. Kelly, there. A burden in that school. A burden for those people. Dave, wherever you and your family is going to be, and for right now, a burden for those people. Lunch lady, Dina. Your families, a burden for those people. But not just those people. The people in your offices. Kids in your day camp group. The burden for... I pray that God gives us such a huge burden. And the wisdom to discern what it is that He wants us to do. And then a vision of what God desires for us to do. And a commitment to chase after those things. And I will tell you, He will blow us away. And surprise us every time. 
If we confess our sins, he'll, he'll bless us. When we chase after his things, he'll bless us. That's the kind of church I want. If you're looking for an easy church where you occasionally can be a part of things, this isn't going to be it. Where you can just show up and maybe throw up a hand every once in a while and pray. If that's what you're looking for, it's not here. If I'm going to be leading the charge with with Nathan and the, the deacons and other ministry leaders, the charge we're going to lead is a burden for God's people. His vision. And having an undying, unwavering commitment to that. We're going to fail at it all the time. Thank God for grace. We can pick it up and run again. We are going to pursue His kingdom and His righteousness. And all God's people said, let's pray.